the teens that they would pay me if I would hit the gritty as I came up the stairs. <laughs> I said, I can't, or I would. <laughs> Some of you don't know what that is. Don't worry about it. Uh, anyway, got to say this, too. I never, you never know where volunteerism is going to take you, but then you never know where voluntoldism is going to take you. I am in awe this morning that last night voluntoldism had me running uh, the roulette table at prom, and now this morning I'm preaching, and that is a strange dichotomy. I will say, though, if you're worried about that, like our preacher's teaching kids to gamble, I kept saying to the kids, do you realize how much you're losing? Never go to Vegas. That's what I kept doing. I was, I was using it as a moral time of teaching. And I had a few kids go, you're right, you're right. So anyway, we are so glad that you are here this morning. It's going to be a great day as we continue our series on words of life. I want to encourage you to grab your Bible, open up your bulletin, follow along as we study a word that is the center of our life. It is the cross today. It is the centerpiece of salvation. It is the place where Jesus comes and shows us not only that we can have life, but how to live it. So there's a legend on the fictional playground of Westmore Middle School. It's been going on for a number of years. This started several years ago, but it's a legend about an old moldy piece of cheese. The cheese, according to the legend, was somehow dry and moldy at the same time, a gross mess. And it was believed at Westmore Middle School that anybody who touched this ancient curd would be cursed with what the middle schoolers called the cheese touch. If infected because you touched this on purpose or by accident, If you were infected with the cheese touch, anybody else you came into contact with would also be infected. So, of course, as you know, middle school students avoided the cheese and the cheese touch. And all who may have been infected with this cheese touch, like the plague. Well, one fateful day, according to the story, a group of bullies from Westmore confronted two self-proclaimed wimpy kids. Greg Heffley, and his even wimpier friend, Rowley. As the story went, Rowley was made by the bullies to not only touch the gross piece of cheese and be infected with the cheese touch, but they made him take a bite of it. Word began to spread around about Rowley being not only infected, but super infected with the cheese touch. But that's when his friend, Greg, stepped up to protect his friend from a life of middle school shame. He let Rally off the hook by starting a new story and becoming a hero and taking and picking up the cheese and throwing it away. Greg took the cheese touch and the curse that went with it from his friend, taking away Rally's shame and saving him from certain three years of middle school doom. That is the gospel according to Diary of a wimpy kid. Now, I never thought I would use that in a sermon either, but I love that story because somehow, even though I'm sure the author of Diary of a Wimpy Kid did not have this in mind, that story gets to the heart of our good news as Christians 
the heart and the meaning of the cross. That one friend would risk difficulty and disgrace in a place of weakness in order to protect and love somebody else in a more fragile position. This morning as we explore the cross, we know that the cross stands at the center of our faith. But I want you to know this morning that the cross was not just a random means of execution for Jesus. It wasn't a random place of suffering and death, as if he could die any other way, and it would have still been the same. That's not the gospel. The gospel is that Jesus specifically, and God intentionally, planned a death on a cross as the means of redemption. So much so that the New Testament writers, and specifically Paul, will often call the cross, not just the cross, but as in Galatians 6, 14, they will adopt the phrase, the cross of Christ. Giving it a more uh, pronounced name, a more uh, meaningful name. Here's what Paul says, may I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. The death of Jesus on what we wear around our necks or on t-shirts, but the death of Jesus on a Roman cross is the context in which God chooses to bring new life through suffering, redemption through death. And it is the place that when we come to it, we find life. We find transformation inside and out. And what a place. What a strange, what a bizarre, what a wonder-inspiring place for God to do his best work. Because as you know, the crucifixion was the worst of suffering. The worst of deaths. Invented to create deepest shame upon its sufferers. In the ancient world, Rome, as they reserved this place for terrorists and thieves and fools, it was thought to be a cursed place. So much so that there's been graffiti found in the ancient city of Pompeii as they've dug up Pompeii from Mount Vesuvius' eruption. There's been graffiti found on walls, scribbled in Greek, that reads, Go crucify yourself. Now, I don't have to make connection for a modern English version of that phrase. Or, there's other insults that have been found in the ancient world about what the cross meant. Around the year 200 AD, there was a place found in Rome depicting this picture. It depicts a man named Alexander. You can see the real one there on the left and then a drawing of of an exact representation on the right. And it's mockery of the foolishness of a man named Alexander who is a worshiper of Jesus. And the writing below just says, Alexander worships is God. And they depict Jesus as a donkey because it was foolish at the time and it's still foolish today 
for us to be people who choose the cross. But today, as we all know, or hopefully if you are becoming to know, coming to know this, in the shadow of the cross, we see this different. And may we see it even more different that the cross today, as we examine this idea of the New Testament word, the cross, or the cross of Christ, this is more than just a gift of salvation. It's more than just an object of wonder. What you will see today is the cross is a call. More than just a means of salvation, the New Testament calls us to the cross as a way of life. Specifically here, you see this in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2. Paul speaks of the cross this way as he speaks about some people that don't like him as a preacher, do not like him as a minister. And he says, I didn't come with you to you with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaim to you the testimony about God. And then you hear the heart of a cross-centered man. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It's our goal today, church family, to strive to dive deep into the meaning of the crucifixion and how it calls us to self-sacrifice and how, through the words of Jesus in himself and in his ministry, Jesus did not speak even as the cross as just a transaction of paying for our sins, but he speaks of it as an invitation to life. Let's hear these words of Jesus from Matthew 16. I memorized this from the KJVs, and we had a song about it growing up, so I can't help but think about a song. If any man come after me, we would sing. Anybody else know that song? Let him deny himself. Nobody. I think we made it up. But uh, anyway, everybody's like, nope. Right. My brother used to sing it to me all the time, but he would change the words. It wasn't appropriate. But anyway, uh, Matthew 16, 24. Jesus says this. It's an invitation to the cross. Then Jesus said to his disciples, whoever wants to be my disciple, that's us. We're here today desiring discipleship. Jesus says, though, they must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. The cross today for us, we know it's not foolish. We know it's a place of salvation, but may we discover maybe for the first time or maybe again or be reminded or be transformed or be challenged this morning to realize that the cross is your call. It is each and every one of us, not the special, not the elite, not those with more knowledge. It is all of us who desire the forgiveness of Jesus. It is our call to carry a cross as well. The fancy word for that in theological terms is the word cruciformity. Cruciformity is the idea, according to scholar Michael Gorman, is conformity to the cross. He defines cruciformity from the New Testament as he uh, is a great New Testament scholar, and he gives this mouthful of what it means to be cross-shaped or cruciform. He says it's conformity to the cross, to Christ crucified. Cruciformity is the ethical dimension of the theology of the cross found in the New Testament and the Christian tradition. Cruciformity is spirit-enabled conformity to the indwelling, crucified, and resurrected Christ. Wow. 
I would say, I don't understand half those words. Anybody with me? Or I need to hear it again. But instead of hearing it again, cruciformity is simply learning to live Christ-shaped. Taking on the nature of Jesus and accepting the call. Let's get a little VBS in us, right? VBS songs always have hand motions. If you want to remember a good definition of cruciformity, all you got to do is this. Cruciformity. Do it with me. Everybody do it with me. It's cruciformity. It's taking on the shape of the cross. Cruciformity. It's living in the invitation of Jesus to be a disciple and understanding that in that invitation is a call to carry to be transformed into the shape of the cross. And I'm going to say this, church family, taking the shape of the cross is non-optional for Christians. Jesus doesn't call us and say, some of you can do this, others, it's all right. It is non-optional. It is the call of all Christians to take up the cross because it is in the cross we find life. And this isn't because Jesus is making a nonsensical demand on our lives in order to make it more difficult. That is not the reason Jesus calls us to carry our cross. He calls us to carry our cross because in cruciformity, or in living cruciformly, it means that we find new life and we find a way that expresses the good news to the world around us. Cruciformity, or being cross-shaped, is our call. And I would even go so far to say that it is the remedy to a world that is so turned inward, that is so selfish, to what Adam just prayed about, that we build our own little kingdoms, and we're taught that over and over to a world that desperately needs a new narrative, when we take on a new shape that is cross-shaped, we can again proclaim good news. So I want to show you this morning a way to do that. And I want to admit, first of all, that it's not easy. In the words of David Crowder Band, back when David Crowder Band was really good, he's okay now, he's not near like he was in the 90s and early 2000s, He used to have a song, I think he got it from Hank Williams, but the line went, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to die. We don't like cruciformity. So I understand the tension of this lesson. I understand the hard concept it is to say, I've got to do what, Jesus, to become like you? But let us trust this morning in this. The cruciformity is not dictated, nor is the call of Jesus dictated by our emotions or our circumstances. What dictates our desire to be cross-shaped is our faith. It is our trust. And our faith is built on a trust and knowledge that through the cross, strength came through weakness, change came through sacrifice, and life came from death. Resurrection came from crucifixion. So if there's one New Testament letter outside the Gospels that captures the idea of the cross, 
The idea of cruciformity, it's Paul's first letter to the Corinthians. You know that church, that messed up church. It's that group of believers that had many problems, but if you were to sum up the Corinthian church with most of their problems, it was that they really liked power. They liked those who were had the best friends and the most powerful Roman officials and those who had the gifts that were most expressive and those that could be most seen and those who had the most charisma. They loved that. And Paul's letter to them is a letter written to say, don't forget the cross. You can't have Jesus without the cross. This group of believers in their cultural power struggles and the things that they were doing in order to commune with each other looked a lot more like cultural power structures than it did the shape of the cross. It may be hard for us to imagine what it looked like for them 2,000 years ago, but here's some examples. If we were to do what the Corinthians were doing, imagine coming to services next week and you got seated by popularity. I don't know who gets to choose that, but somebody gets to choose and you got seated. We'd start at the back because that's where everybody likes to sit, right? We'd, We'd fill up the back and everybody that was popular got to sit back there. Or imagine coming to church and those who gave the most the week before were the ones that got communion. And if you didn't give a certain amount, you were overlooked. Or imagine coming to church and the members who had been here the longest got to use the building and nobody else got to use it at all. That's what was going on in Corinth. Now, if you can imagine any situation like that or any others that you would add to that, you're getting to the heart of what's going on in Corinth and the gravity of what Paul is going to write. And what he's going to say to them first is this, is he's going to show them, first of all, that cruciformity is shaped toward God. It is shaped towards God first. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25, listen to what he says about himself. He gives himself as an example in order to try to inspire them to live cross-shaped towards God. To be a person, to have an attitude that prioritizes God's will above anything else, no matter the cost. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run but only one gets the prize. Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it for, to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Paul says, you want to fix your church. The first step is having an attitude that prioritizes the will of God over all else. That it's cruciformity first towards God. Now most of us in here, in history class or whatever, or learning or watching the History Channel, we know of Henry Ford. And some of us have probably even heard of a guy named Walter Chrysler, giant in the auto industry in America. But have you ever heard of another guy named Henry Leland? Henry Leland was a machinist and inventor around the time of Henry Ford, a contemporary of him. And around the turn of the 20th century, as he was good with machining parts, he became ever so frustrated 
with slow production of automobiles. Up until that time, every car might be the same model, but every part that went on the car was made in a way that when you tried to put it on the car, it had to be tinkered with, filed, chipped away at, beat in a certain way in order to actually fit. There was no such thing as precision machinery. So Henry Leland wanted to change that. So he began a production process that invented the first ever precision car parts. Precision parts that could be machined identical to the last and to the next. Parts that could be taken off an old car and a new one put on. Engines that could be taken out and a new engine dropped right in. Things we take for granted, right? Now this innovation was actually what led to Henry Ford being able to invent the assembly line. Because you didn't have to slow anything down. And Leland lived by that. He loved accuracy. He loved efficiency. He loved things being precise. And he always had this saying that he's attributed to. He would always say, never mistake good with good enough. We want things that work good, not good enough. I had never heard of Henry Leland. One of the reasons you never have heard of Henry Leland before is because he didn't name car companies after himself like Ford and Chrysler. But he is the only man that still has two automobile uh, uh, companies still on the road 100 years later. He invented the big names of Oldsmobile and Cadillac. He is responsible for the caddy. Precision parts. Don't, if we're going to be shaped in the way of Jesus, we cannot mistake a good enough part-time relationship with God with what can be a good, great, growing relationship with God. Church family, you know this. And this isn't us picking on anybody. This isn't me trying to be mean. But I promise you, you will not become cross-shaped with a Sunday-only faith. It's not enough. So we've got to be shaped toward God. Second thing that Paul gets to it says, we're not only shaped towards God, but we come people. And in Corinth, he is pushing this and pushing this, that we shape ourselves away from self. We move our lives away from selfishness. The cross and the way of the cross is a completely upside-down worldview, a new worldview that you have to adopt. When you come to the cross and see it for what it is, you see reality in Jesus of a whole new way. Because at the cross, you discover that sacrifice is really not loss. It's somebody else's gain. At the cross, you learn that things like being honest about your sin and confession is no longer embarrassment, it's reality and it's freedom. At the cross, you learn that vulnerability isn't weakness, it's courage. It's at the cross we learn that selflessness isn't foolish, It's not foolish to give myself away, give my time away. It's wise and it's life-giving. 
So in chapter 9, also in 1 Corinthians, what Paul does there is he goes through, he's trying to make a case a little bit for himself. He's got some detractors there that are like, well, you're just not a very good speaker. We don't like you. You seem too harsh. You're too mean. And Paul goes through a list of rights that he could have. He talks about, I could have asked for more money from y'all. I never asked money from you. He, he says, I could have taken a wife. Other apostles have a wife. I don't have one. He talks about his right to ask for more help with his ministry. But then he speaks about how he gives all those rights away. I want you to hear some of these words. Here's what he says in verse 12. Speaking of him and his partners in the gospel, he says, but we did not use these rights or this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hinder the gospel of Christ. Then he continues in verse 19, he says, Though I am free and belong to no one, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but I'm under Christ's law. So as to win those not having the law. To the weak I become weak. To win the weak I've become all things to all people. By, uh, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel. That I may share in what? Not suffering. Blessings. This cross-shaped outward movement from self instead of inward movement towards selfishness. Paul says... For the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the cross, I move away from myself so that people can know Jesus. Paul wouldn't make a very good American because he's willing to give up his rights for other people. Seems that all we want to argue about is what's my right to take from other people. Paul gives up his authority. Paul gives up food and drink. He gives up salary. He gives up his right of his traditions, his way, and more. That's why Paul will circumcise one other young disciple and not the other. That's why he'll worship with Jews sometimes, Gentiles with others, trying to bring them together because he's willing to give up his rights. And I've got a question for you that's going to step on your toes because it has stepped all over me all week. Because as I read 1 Corinthians 9, it's where I started my study on Monday. I couldn't get away from this question. It's a question of, if I'm going to be cross-shaped, I need to honestly answer this. And it's, do I love, do we love our rights more than we love seeing other people come to know Jesus? Do we love our traditions? Do we love the things that we think we have to have? Do we love the things that we hold on to? See, a cruciform person is willing to give up their rights. Paul says, I have a right to whatever. I'm not under the law, but I give it up. A cruciform person then gives up their rights you can fill in the blank in your own examples, but what I immediately thought of was these things. 
If we're cross-shaped, we give up our right to define our time and our schedule on our terms. It is God's time. I am gifted it. At the cross, I learned that I am not only stewarding wealth, I am stewarding my time on earth. It's at the cross, a cruciform person gives up our right to money. It's no longer my right. What money is in the kingdom of Jesus is my opportunity to be a blessing. A cruciform person also gives up their right to define sexuality on their own terms. Whether they're young and single or whether they're married and doing things in secret. For sexuality, a cruciform person, this gives us such an answer to a confused world. Cruciformity says to a confused world about sexuality that there is a better narrative. A narrative that says it's not just what you feel or what you want or what your mind tells you or what culture tells you. But there is a definition in the image and the wisdom of God that honors God and is beautiful. As a married man, I have no right to lust after other women. As a single person, I have no right to take what is a gift and use it outside of the terms of marriage. As any of us, we have no right to consume a pornographic world when we're cross-shaped. But another place I thought of is that a cruciform person gives up their right to do church their way. I know that one's hard because we often want to say, well, look, it's in the Bible. But I don't want to study it. (laughs) Yeah, there's things in the Bible about how to do church, but there's also something called traditionalism that's not in the Bible. And if we are doing anything as a church that hinders people from knowing Jesus, we are not looking like the cross. We're not. We are taking the place not of sacrifice but of authority. And we're taking the shape of self instead of the cross. And finally, cruciformity is always shaped towards others. It's always shaped towards others. Always moving outward. It always values others above ourselves. Ultimately, the cross is becoming like Jesus and oriented around love. This passage, of course, we read out of context at weddings all the time. I've got my niece's wedding coming up in June, and I'll probably read this context out of context. But it is not contextually for weddings. It is for the church. It's, for, it's Paul's call to the church to say, shape yourself towards not you. If somebody takes your pew, shut up. <laughs> right? Because why? Because love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. Even your preacher. 
It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrong. Church, do you hear that? How many records of wrongs did we come into church this morning with? Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, it always trusts, it always hopes, it always perseveres. Love never fails. In short, Paul's simply saying this, cruciform living, the cross, and those who live under the power of the cross, they love. Because the cross is the ultimate example of Jesus's and God's love. For God so loved that he gave. Love gives itself away. Love spends itself to protect, to preserve, to bless. Love is generous and love is selfless. Right? Cruciformity goes towards God. It goes away from self and it moves towards the other. I think we've seen that shape somewhere before. It's everywhere in our building. It is together we follow Jesus because we're cross-shaped for the sake of others. That's the cross. A bizarre, upside-down, strange way A foolish way that the world would say, why would anybody do that? But only in the wisdom of God, a wisdom that seems foolish to the world, but is more wise than the world, do we see that through death and through self-giving love, we find redemption. May we accept this word today. May we accept this invitation today to be cross-shaped. If you need anything this morning, we are here for you. Let's follow Jesus for the sake of others. Let's stand together and sing. There's a city.